Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's open our Bibles together to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. Romans 5, 12 through 17 is our text this morning. Now next Sunday will be the Sunday before Christmas, and we're going to look at how this passage is related to the essential message of Jesus and his virgin birth. I look forward to that. But for now, let's read our text. Romans 5, 12 through 17. Therefore, Paul writes, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. May the Lord add his blessing in the reading of his word. And when I was 14 years old, our family was living in a tiny Mississippi River Delta town called Lake City, Arkansas. It was not far from where those devastating tornadoes began their destructive path over the weekend. My father was a pastor of First Baptist Church of Lake City, and my brother and I attended the local public high school And in those days, high school freshmen were required to take a social studies class called civics. And in civics class, we learned about representative government, including the three branches of the federal government, how each was designed to be a check and a balance on the other two branches so that no branch became too powerful. We learned that the legislative branch was bicameral, that is, it was divided between the Senate and the House of Representatives. We learned about election law and procedures, age requirements for particular offices, and believe it or not, I found it endlessly interesting. In fact, it became my very favorite class in school. And towards the end of my freshman year, having been taught about our representative government, I read an article in our regional newspaper, the Jonesboro Sun, that one of our elected officials would be visiting our part of the county and the article was described as an opportunity to meet the governor. And the governor of Arkansas at that time was the youngest governor in America, a very charismatic young man named William. He insists on being called Bill. And I talked my father into driving me down to the local Chatterbox Cafe where Governor Bill would be holding forth with the local cotton farmers. And I patiently waited until he finished with the farmers and shook his hand, we had a brief conversation, and since then our paths have taken us in very different directions. (laughs) But the idea of one person representing other people 
was not an idea that I learned from the founding fathers, nor was I first exposed to it in ninth grade civics, but rather from reading the Bible. In fact, it goes all the way back as a concept to the Garden of Eden. And so I want to invite you today to meet your representatives. Now, according to the text that I just read and others like it in the Bible, God in his sovereignty has allowed two persons in history to represent all of humanity before him. And those persons are Adam and Christ. And scripture calls them the first Adam and the last Adam. And this morning we're going to look at these two representatives and then we will follow Paul's logic here in the text as he compares and contrasts the results of their respective representations. Now you likely discerned as I was reading the text that it is a difficult and complex passage. I discerned that by seeing the glazed look on your face as I was reading. If you're anything like me, you found it nearly impossible to track Paul's thought process. And part of that is because Right away, as Paul begins his argument about the representatives of Adam and Christ, he makes a detour. He makes a digression from his main point at the beginning of verse 12. If you'll notice in your Bible, likely at the end of verse 12, there's a long dash after the word sin. That tells us that he's making a diversion, a digression of thought. It's really a long parenthetical statement. And so he doesn't pick up the main thought again until he comes to verse 18. And so if you would read verse 12, verse 18, back to back, the whole thing makes a lot more sense. So let me just do that for us. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, so then, so you see those two words that tell us where the thought begins and ends. Therefore is a transition of thought, and so then, it's a continuation of that thought. So then, as though one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. And so he begins verse 12 by saying, through one man sin entered the world. Now who was that man? Well, that was our first father, Adam. It was Adam and Eve through which sin entered the world. And the scripture says, through one transgression. It only took one sin for the world to end up in the mess that it's in. Of course, that sin was a violation of God's one prohibition. God had given Adam and Eve a perfect environment in which to live, we call the Garden of Eden, and only gave them one rule, don't eat of this particular tree that's in the midst of the garden. And of course, they did eat of it, and that was the one transgression. And the scripture goes on to say, though, that through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification. Now, justification is the theme of the entire book of Romans, right? And Paul is arguing that just as Adam represented the human race and sin and sin's nature passed through Adam because of that one sin, that Christ, through his righteous act of substitutionary atonement, all who believe can be saved. Paul's point, not only here in this scripture, but in a number of places in his writings, is that every human being is either in Christ or he's still in Adam. Now what in the world does that matter? Well, last week we looked at the implications of the doctrine of justification by faith. And I told you that it's a complex doctrine, many implications, but to hold on to one verse. Do you remember what it was? Romans chapter eight, verse one, which says there is therefore now that is as a result of what Christ did on the cross, no condemnation, no damnation, no wrath, 
for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. So it is an incredibly important truth. The implication of Romans 8, 1, since there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, the implication is there is certainly condemnation for those who are not in Christ, but still in Adam. So let's begin by looking at the two most important persons in human history, Adam and Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that the Bible says the two most important figures in history are not governors, nor presidents, or celebrities, but it's those the Lord chose to represent us, Adam and Christ. Now, what do we know about Adam? His name means humanity or mankind. And Paul indicates here that he's a real, live, historical person. Unlike maybe what many of the liberal theologians teach, Adam is not mythology. He, he's not some uh, manifestation of man's psyche. He was a real flesh and blood person. And the Bible in, in, in no place views him as a metaphor, but as a real person. In fact, the Bible says he was created by God from the dust of the earth. Listen to Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man. And the, in his likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness. And after his image he called him Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Does that sound like mythology? No, it sounds like biography to me. That's his life. He was created, he lived, and he died. And he had children in between. Now what was Adam's nature? Well, the scripture seems to indicate, and we know because he did, that he was able to sin. But he was created in a state of innocence, meaning this, not only was he able to sin, he was able not to sin. And yet he did. Adam had true free will. And Adam, of course, needed a helper and God gave him a helpmate, Eve. And together they disobeyed God as they violated God's prohibition of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And of course, because they disobeyed God, they were cursed and the earth was cursed. And Every subsequent generation of humanity was cursed. In other words, they were held accountable by God for their sin. We read about that in Genesis chapter 3. But it gets worse. Not only was Adam found guilty for his sin, Adam, as we just said, had children, and he passed his nature now, his inability, he lost his ability not to sin, and he passed that on to his children. And they passed it on to their children, and that's how we got to the situation we're in today. Now, theologians call this the concept of original sin. It's how we got a sin nature, which was transferred from Adam to us. And it really answers a lot of life's greatest questions. Now, as Christians who study your Bible regularly, you need to have great confidence that you can answer life's greatest questions. What do I mean by life's greatest questions? How do we get here? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Well, the Westminster Catechism says to uh, serve God, glorify Him forever, and to enjoy Him forever. Um, the Bible teaches us these things. It answers these questions. One of the other great questions of life is, why is the world in such a mess? 
In other words, why is there pain and suffering and disease and tornadoes and, and death? Well, the, the scripture here answers life's greatest questions. It's because of our first parents, Adam and Eve's disobedience. And so there's our great-great-grandfather, Adam. Now let's look at the second representative from history, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was his name given to him by his parents. It's a derivative of the word Joshua, which means the Lord saved. Not an uncommon name at all in that day. But his title was Christ, Messiah, Savior, Deliverer. His nature is that he is the eternal Son of God. He was not created. He was preexistent. That is, he was present at creation. John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things created by him and through him. Nothing has been created that has been created except through him. We call him today the God-man. That is, he had two natures, altogether God, yet fully man. And when he broke into history through his supernatural conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, um, we call that his incarnation is enfleshment. He took on human flesh. And the scripture says he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And that is his function to, uh, as God, living alongside his creatures here on earth. It was a supernatural birth, as you know. And as we'll study in some detail, he was born of a virgin. That's very important. And we'll look more at that importance next Sunday. He lived a perfect life, sinless and holy in every way. The scripture says tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, Christ died for us. And he did die a literal sacrificial death. And the concept we often call a substitutionary atonement. He took the punishment that our sins deserve. The scripture says the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He is that Lamb of God that was foretold and foreshadowed in typical prophecy. Every time a animal was killed and shed his blood. It was looking forward in time to that moment when Jesus would come and be the once and for all sacrifice for sin. And he was literally crucified and he literally died and placed in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day he was resurrected. He came forth from the tomb and for 40 days he was witnessed to by hundreds of people and in the presence of those people. He ascended from the Mount of Olives back into heaven. The scripture says he is seated today at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us. As we saw last week, always standing between sinners like us and the righteous wrath of God. And therefore, we have nothing to fear. For as long as God the Father is pleased and satisfied with God the Son and his sacrifice, he will never change his mind about us. That's the basis of our assurance. And so what Paul does in this parenthesis, beginning at the end of verse 12, going all the way through verse 17, is that he offers us similarities between the two Adams, the first Adam and the last Adam, and then he offers us differences, the ways in which Adam and Christ were different. And both of those are, are very, very important. So let me go back and read now verses 12 through 14, and let's look at the similarities between Adam and Christ. Therefore, now that therefore sums up what he has said about reconciliation, that we are no longer enemies of God through justification by faith. He has brought us near, called us sons and daughters. Jesus calls us friends. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, we've said that's Adam, and death through sin, there's an answer to one of life's greatest questions. Why do people die? Because of the sin of Adam. 
And so death spread to all men. Death is universal in scope. Scripture says the point every man wants to die and then to be judged by God. Why? Because all sin. Now hold on to that. Underline it. Because all sin. That's a very important phrase. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. What he means by that is that uh, God didn't give humanity his law in written form until Moses came along. Well, hundreds of years had intervened between Adam and Moses and people were dying every day. And so he says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of, of Adam. So Adam was given a law, don't eat of the tree. He didn't, he died. Then we didn't have any more law until God gave it to Moses and yet people continued to die. And he says then, at the end of verse 14, Adam is a type of him who was to come. That is, he was a foreshadowing and a prophecy about Christ who would come later. Now there's some key words I want us to see in those three verses. Number one is the, the phrase just as in verse 12. So that phrase means there's some similarities between Christ and, and Adam, some very important similarities. And then he says the phrase, Adam, who is a, a type, and we've already talked about what types are in typical prophecies. Let's go a little more detail about that. What are some other typical prophecies in the Old Testament? Well, they're really into two broad categories. You have symbols and you have people. Well, what are some of the symbols in the Old Testament that point to Christ? Well, we talked about one when we were taking the Lord's Supper. Those lambs that were sacrificed and their blood was placed over the doorpost and lintel of the homes of the slaves in Egypt foreshadowed when Christ would come and where his blood is applied to a sinner, God's wrath passes over. There's another symbol in the Old Testament during the time of Moses when they were wandering in the wilderness. Remember, snakes came and bit the people because of their disobedience to God. And God told Moses to form a serpent of bronze and to put it on a pole and he lifted it up. And when the people looked at that snake, they were healed. And that is a foreshadowing, I believe, of the cross of Christ. As he's lifted up, he draws men and women unto himself and he heals their sin sickness. So those are some symbols that are typical prophecy in the Old Testament. There are some people though that in hindsight we know God used as signs and, and foreshadowing of Christ to come. Very early on in the Bible, we come in contact with a man by the name of Melchizedek, who the scripture describes as a priestly king. Here's a guy that had the offices of king and also the office of priest, and sacrifices were made to him. And the, the scripture in the New Testament points out that this was a foreshadowing of Christ. Jesus said, one of the types of him and foreshadowing of him was the prophet Jonah. And he says the sign of Jonah would be the last sign that mankind would be given about the Savior. Even as Jonah spent three days in the whale, the Son of Man would spend three days in the earth, right? So he talks about his resurrection. So all of these signs and symbols and people are foreshadowing of Christ who was the perfect fulfillment of God's will. But hear this, the only person the only person mentioned in the Old Testament that we are told explicitly is a type of Jesus is Adam. And he says so here right in verse 14. Look what he says. Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. 
So what do we mean by that? Well, I think he's here talking about what theologians refer to as the federal headship of Adam. Now, you won't find that word in your Bible, federal headship, but it is a way of summarizing these verses and other like it. That is that God allowed our first father, Adam, to in some regard represent all of human history and how God imputes accounts to Adam and to us this sin nature. Now, what is the proof of that? Well, he says that people died from Adam to Moses. So it's not for their personal sins that people are dying. Um, and sometimes people die in what we would say is innocency or before the age of accountability, they used to say when I was growing up. We know that infants and small children sometimes die. And so when people talk about God imputing Adam's guilt to us through what we call original sin, You'll hear people, and maybe you're feeling in your own heart, I don't like that doctrine very much. Because as Americans, we like, for, we like to, to, to stand on our own record for good, bad, or indifferent. And yet, as Americans, we celebrate representative government all the time. And, and the main argument I hear about the doctrine of federal headship is this. The same argument my children made when they were three. That is not fair, right? And I would just say to that, be very careful about saying God is not fair. In fact, as we'll study in a few chapters in Romans chapter 9, Paul anticipated concerning some of his doctrine that people were going to listen to it and say, that's not fair. And Paul, hearkening back to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, says, can the clay say to the potter, I don't like how you made me? And in that metaphor, we're certainly not the potter. We're not the craftsman. We are the clay that God has made and can shape it in any way that he pleases. So, so it's not a very strong argument about anything to say it's, it's not fair. But there are some more thoughtful objections. And I know some of you are studying the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, right, in Sunday school class. And if you haven't already, you're probably going to come to a chapter in 18 that says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And it seems to indicate that God only punishes a person for their individual sin. So that would seem to refute federal headship that God imputes Adam's guilt to all humanity. But be careful there because, yes, it's true that you'll not be punished for your father's sins directly. He's not talking about sins. He's talking about sin nature. He's talking about the results of the curse. Remember, when Adam was created, he had the ability to sin and also the ability not to sin. But when he sinned, he lost the ability not to sin. And that's why we say we are sinners by nature, but also sinners by choice. In other words, we don't have the ability not to sin. And that's what was passed from Adam to us. He was and is a representative of all humanity. And I would say this, he is a perfect representative. One of the things we know about God, he is omniscient. He knows all things. And so he chose and picked a perfect representative of humanity. You don't have to worry that Adam was not a good representative for you. And I take that to mean this. If any one of us had been chosen to represent all of humanity, we would also have failed. <laughs> We would also have chosen, uh, would have chosen sin. 
So in other words, Adam did exactly what every one of us would have done. And so God righteously imputes, charges to our account, the guilt of Adam. And incidentally, isn't what we believe about salvation by grace through faith also based on imputation? The fact that at the cross, God who is perfectly holy and righteous allows his son Jesus to represent every sinner who would believe on the cross. We like that, but we don't like the fact necessarily that he allows Adam's sin to be imputed to our account. So let's talk a little bit about the differences. Those are the similarities. Federal headship and imputation of sin are common to both Adam and Jesus Christ, but from very different perspectives. But really the point he's making is not how similar Adam and Christ are. The point he's making is how different they are. And that is seen beginning in verse 15 through 17. And we know it's a transition. What's the first word in verse 15? But, which means a distinction between what he's just said. But the free gift is not like the transgression. What is the free gift? That's grace through Christ's substitutionary atonement. Is not like the transgression, that is the sin of Adam. For if by the transgression of the one, the one is Adam who sinned, the many died. Now he's not talking about a number. He's just talking about everyone died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. There's a little phrase there. We looked at it last week that says one is greater than the other. And the phrase is much more. That is what Adam did, we have to admit, caused a lot of problems in the world. But the grace that was brought through Christ, our other representative, is greater than any sin Adam committed. Would you agree? That's what Paul is saying. He says, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. It only took one sin for the world to fall apart. And if Adam had never sinned again, which we certain he did, then that would have been enough for Jesus to have to die. But it's through many other transgressions. That's why I say we are sinners by nature. And the way we say it here is that we sin because we're sinners we're not sinners because we sin, but we also sin, don't we? At a very early age. But that free gift arose from many sins, that is of the whole world. And the result of that gift of substitution and atonement is justification, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 17, now stay with me, you're getting glassy-eyed again. For if by the transgression of the one, who's that? That's Adam. Death reigned through the one. Now, what does it mean that death reigned? That it was ubiquitous, universal in scope. Even the strongest and the healthiest die. Adam, we just read, lived 930 years. But what happened? He died. He's not around today. And today, the scripture says we can expect to live three score and 10, 70 years. You remember when that seemed like a long time? Doesn't anymore for most of us. But that's a, that's, that's a general life expectancy. And if you look at all the tables around the world, that's, that's about right. But we die. Even the oldest, most healthy person knows they're going to die. So death reigned because of Adam's sin. Much more, there's that phrase again, those who receive the abundance of grace, that is believers. And now the gift of righteousness, that's substitutionary atonement, will reign 
in life through the one Jesus Christ. That's another way of saying John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not what? Perish ultimately, but would have everlasting life. So what are the differences between the first Adam and the last Adam? Well, there are many. One, Adam was created a human and Jesus is God in the flesh. That's a big distinction. Jesus is divine and eternal. This is his superiority over the first Adam. That's why he uses the phrase twice much more. Adam was created in a state of innocence with the capacity to sin. Jesus is inherently righteous and impeccable. Another difference is the result of their representation. The result of our forefather Adam's representing us is that we're all condemned. Thanks a lot, Adam, right? Well, we'd all done the same thing. That's the point. But the result of Christ's representation is our justification. That's what he says in verse 16. The gift, grace, is not like that which came through the one who sinned, Adam. For on the one hand, the judgment arose through Adam. But on the other hand, the free gift arose to justification. Adam's representation resulted in tragedy, death, and condemnation. Christ representing us at the cross resulted in forgiveness and grace and justification and praise God, heaven. And then the third difference is what he calls the reign of death and the reign of life. Adam's representation resulted in the physical and spiritual death of every human being. Christ's representation resulted in regeneration, new life, and yes, eternal life for all who believe. Verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in what? Not death, but life. Now, Paul declares here implicitly and in 1 Corinthians 15 explicitly that all human beings are in one or two categories. Remember, we always say that as human beings, we like to divide people up into groups and subgroups and sub-subgroups. But the Bible only divides humanity into two categories. We can call it the lost or the saved, the sheep or the goats. David calls it the righteous and the wicked. Paul calls it, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. So let's conclude by looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. Just uh, few pages over towards the end of your Bible, you'll come to the book of 1 Corinthians and make your way to chapter 15. And those of you who are studious know that chapter 15 is the concept of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand that the resurrection is not some secondary or tertiary issue, that it is the main issue of the gospel. And we love to read beginning in verse 17. Uh, about all the things that, that Christ has done for us. And he goes on to talk about in uh, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, that's Adam. By man also came the resurrection, that's Christ. For it, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be what? Made alive. And so here's the primary difference between Adam's representation and Christ's representation. Adam's representation led to universal death. Christ's representation leads to eternal life for all who will believe. Now, let's finger go over to verse 45. 
It's another one of those long parentheses that he picks back up again in verse 45. He says, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. So here is how Christ is so much superior to the first Adam. Adam was created from nothing. Christ is a life-giving, that is a creative spirit, that his death gives life to others. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven, as is the earthy. So also are all those who are earthy, as in the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. So just a simple way of saying that as a result of being Adam's descendants, we have a body like his, right? It wears out, it dies. Verse 49, here's the conclusion. Just as, that is in a similar way, we have borne the image of the earthy, that is we're like Adam physically, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. The Bible says even though these bodies that we inherited from Adam are gonna wear out and die, and return to dust. One day when Christ returns, he's going to give us a body fit for heaven. Like his, in other words. Just like we have a body like Adam's now, we're going to have a body like Jesus. Well, what was the resurrected body of Jesus like? Well, he could be in one place one second and a very different place another. He could walk through walls. I'm grateful that he ate in that body and will eat in our heavenly bodies. And that promise we just read of the Lord's Supper is that uh, one day we're going to eat that supper new and drink that wine new with Christ. I take it around the marriage supper of the Lamb. So what's the point of all this? I, I'm getting to it right now. What about you? Paul has says you're either in Christ or you're in Adam. If you're in Christ, you should be free of anxiety and worry about the future because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But the implication is, and the clear statement of the rest of Scripture is that if you're still in Adam, you're still in your sins. And if you're still in your sins, you will face the wrath of God. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. What the Scripture calls the day of wrath. That one day, every person that's ever been born is going to stand before their creator, God, and the books are going to be open. And every evil thought you've ever thought, ever evil act you've ever committed, every wrong motive that's ever crossed your mind is going to be brought forth. And you are going to be laid bare. Your mouth is going to be stopped. You're not going to have any defense. You're not going to have any excuse. And God's going to say, in effect, why should I let you into heaven? And the only hope you have is that I put my faith and trust in Christ. The Bible says to those who put their faith and trust in Christ, they're, they're called sheep. He's going to welcome them into heaven. But for those who've not put their faith and trust in Christ, Scripture says they're going to be cast into the lake of fire forever. That's why this doctrine is so essential and why it's so important. Are you in Christ or are you still in Adam? Well, you can be in Christ today. How so? Philippian jailer asked, Paul, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, and you may. Here in Romans chapter 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and 
believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is, you'll be rescued from the wrath of God. In other words, you will be said to be in Christ. Justified. I told you there's three things you have to know to have true joy. One, you have to know that you don't deserve God's grace because then it becomes very sweet to you when you hear the gospel. Then you have to know that God has justified you, forgiven you, declared you not guilty. And then you have to know that that justification is forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you're here today and you put your faith and trust in Christ, that is forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Every time we gather around the Lord's table, that's what we're celebrating. Christ's love in the past, that he would leave the glories of heaven to die in our place, that he's presently with us in his spirit, and that one day we are literally with resurrected bodies going to enjoy his presence forever. Let's thank the Lord for those truths. Heavenly Father, as we gather around your word today and gather around the table, we rejoice. We're so grateful because it has answered so many of life's questions that so many of our friends and neighbors have. How do we get here? What's the meaning of life? Why is the world in such a mess? It's because of our first parents, Adam and Eve's sin. Father, I'm so grateful that we have the whole counsel of God, not just the book of Genesis. We also have the book of Revelation, which tells us that one day you're going to make all things new. You're going to restore your creation to what it was intended to be. And we're going to be free not only from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but we're going to be free forever from the very presence of sin. Lord, I thank you for that. And I say with Christians of old, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father, I want everyone I know to have that same assurance of salvation. So if there's even one here today who knows you not, convict them by your spirit of their personal sin and guilt, your holiness and righteousness and your judgment that is is to come. And grant them, I pray today, faith which leads to repentance, not for our glory, but for yours. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.